Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, we'll present portions of two news conferences that took place in the last couple of days. One is with Governor Mike DeWine held on Friday, and the other is with public health officials and doctors from Columbus that took place on Thursday. Both are about the coronavirus. Then in about 20 minutes, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS-10-TV, Tracy Townsend covers topics that include the politics over wearing a mask, water quality in central Ohio, and efforts to crack down on hazing. In about 45 minutes, I'll talk with a representative from FEMA about flood insurance. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics about vaccines. First up on Columbus Perspective, Governor Mike DeWine held a news conference on Friday providing an update on the coronavirus. Here's just a portion of that event. This lasts about five minutes. We are really at a new stage in this pandemic. So these are the essential facts. The essential fact is that we have three vaccines that are highly, highly effective. They're so powerful that we now live in a state with two groups of people, those who are vaccinated and those who are not vaccinated. Two groups of people, those vaccinated who are safe, and sadly, those who are not vaccinated who are not safe. By the numbers, today, 60% of all adults 18 years of age and older are now vaccinated, 40% of those adults, of course, are not. If you look at those 12 years of age and up, 58% are vaccinated and 42% are not. No fact better illustrates how powerful the vaccines are than by looking at the people who have been in our hospitals for COVID since January 1st of this year, when the vaccine first really started to have a big impact. This is the total number of people who have been in the hospital for COVID since January 1st, 18,662 people. Of that group of people, those who are not vaccinated constitute 18,367. Those who were in the hospital for COVID who were vaccinated were 295. Just a stark, stark difference. Uh, If you break that down by percentage, that means the people who've been hospitalized since January in Ohio for COVID, 98.4% had not been vaccinated. 1.6% had been vaccinated. Again, there's no more strong testament to the power of the vaccine. Uh, We receive this information. uh, It's updated every week. Uh, And we will be posting this every Thursday. So everyone every week can go up online and kind of see where those those numbers are. We truly have two Ohio's, uh, one group of people who are safe, one who are not. Making it more dangerous for those who are not vaccinated 
is the emergence of the Delta variant. It is now clearly, clearly the dominant, the dominant virus in Ohio. Going back just to May, less than 1% of lab sequence cases were the Delta variant, less than 1%. Our most recent data is from July 4th through July 17th. That showed that 86.47% of our lab sequence cases were the Delta variant. So over 86%. Experts tell me that we're way above that number uh, today. So what we're dealing with today is the Delta variant in Ohio. For those who get infected with the Delta variant, experts tell us that they, they very well may have a higher viral load. But it's really, in essence, two different things. Two different things, both not good. One is it's a lot more contagious. And two is, in many cases, individuals who get it carry a higher viral load. Thus, people are getting sicker quicker. Uh, this is one of the observations that some of the doctors have made about our more younger people. They're getting when they go to that hospital, they're getting sicker quicker, and, and it's believed that that viral load, increase in the viral load, is driving that. Let me turn to some other uh, data. Let's look at hospitalizations. We were seeing hospitalizations go down, down, down. Uh, we were very happy about that. But what this chart shows is they're now coming back up. Um, if you look at the first number, it is July 23rd, and we have 391 people with COVID in our hospitals statewide. Uh, the last date we have uh, is August 5th, and that number has now climbed to 857. So again, not, not what we want, want to see. That's again Governor Mike DeWine from Friday at a news conference speaking about the coronavirus. A day before that, public health officials and doctors in Columbus held a news conference with a similar theme. We're presenting three speakers from that conference, just portions of what they had to say. First up, this is Dr. Andrew Thomas from Ohio State University's Wexner Medical Center. This just runs about three minutes. I've been asked to share a little information about hospitalized cases uh, both in the state of Ohio as well as here in what we call Zone 2, which is the third of the state that includes Central Ohio, Southern Ohio, and Southeastern Ohio. Uh, we've seen a significant increase over the past month in patients with active COVID-19 being in the hospital. Uh, the state is now approaching 800 patients actively in the hospital with COVID-19. If you look back on July 9th, we were at 200 patients with active COVID-19 in the hospital. So in the past month, a fourfold increase. Even just two weeks ago, we were at uh, under 400 uh, patients in the hospital. Here in Zone 2, which includes the Franklin County area, as I mentioned, and, and areas south of us and southeast of us, we uh, today have at, reached just under 200 patients with active COVID-19 in the hospital. In the last seven days, that's a 51% increase from just a week ago. Back in early July, we were down in the range of 40 patients in the hospital, so a four- to five-fold increase in hospitalizations just in the past month. Now, the good news is, if you look in Zone 2 back in December, we were at around 1,200 patients in the hospital. So 200 is certainly far less than that. However, if we have unmitigated spread of this virus through our communities, some percentage of those that are unvaccinated are going to get sick enough to need to be in our hospitals. 
What we really want to avoid is the situation that we're currently seeing in the state of Florida. I was on calls yesterday with individuals who manage hospitals there. Those hospitals are now beginning again to limit elective surgeries, to reduce the care that they provide to everybody else because COVID-19 patients are overwhelming their hospitals. In Florida currently, they have more patients in many hospitals than they had at the peak of the pandemic last winter. We know how we can avoid that situation here in central Ohio, across the state of Ohio, and that's getting vaccinated. It's your best way to be protected from the most serious complications of this virus. That's being in the hospital, being in the ICU, being on the ventilator, or God forbid, passing away. What we want to do is make sure we're reducing that risk for those that are at risk for severe disease by making sure they're all vaccinated. Good news is, for, in the state of Ohio, for folks over age 65, we're well over 80% that are vaccinated, but it needs to be higher. Those folks in the 20, 30, and 40 age group really need to take this seriously to make sure that they're not getting a case that gets them in the hospital or getting a case of COVID-19 that they give to someone else who's at high risk for serious complications. Dr. Andrew Thomas from OSU. Also from the Wexner Medical Center, Dr. Vina Satapriya spoke, sharing a story about one of her patients. This runs about eight minutes. Um, I was actually asked to provide a story um, about a patient with COVID-19 that I took care of um, in the past few weeks at Ohio State in the cardiovascular intensive care unit. This gentleman, he's 28 years old. Um, I was given permission by his family to talk about his story today. Um, He's 28. He has no past medical history. He's unvaccinated. and, but other than that, no, nothing else to uh, write home about with his health. He was coming back from a vacation with his family out west, um, with his wife and his parents. Um, spent a lot of time hiking, very active guy. On his drive home, he started to feel chills. By the time he got to Chicago, he felt very unwell. Uh, went home, went to bed. The next morning, he got up, felt even worse, went to the ED, got himself tested, tested positive for COVID-19. Again, he's young, healthy. He was sent home to self-isolate, supportive care, um, and he was given a pulse oximeter to monitor his oxygen levels um, at home. Uh, Over the next few days at home, his work of breathing went up. He started to continue to deteriorate. The number on his oxygen monitor went down and it hit to below 90, and so he knew he had to go into the hospital. By that time, his wife had also tested positive. She was also unvaccinated and was um, at home isolating as well. His parents both are vaccinated. His parents are both very uh, strong proponents of getting vaccinated in their community. His mother drove him to the hospital. um, And one of the last things he said to her in that drive was he wished he'd gotten vaccinated. Um, Got to the hospital his local hospital, and in the words of the family, everything very quickly spiraled downward from there. Um, He was at that hospital for five days, got all the appropriate treatment for COVID-19, continued to require more and more oxygen support support to help his breathing to the point where he needed a ventilator and a breathing tube and a ventilator. Even with the breathing tube, even with maximal ventilator support, even with having to Um, be flipped onto his belly to kind of help with his oxygen levels and improve the aeration in his lungs. He, um, his oxygen levels remained dangerously low um, and he was critically ill. And so that's when he got transported to Ohio State to our CVICU, our cardiovascular intensive care unit, 
for evaluation for a life support device called ECMO. ECMO is, uh, it stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. It's a modified heart and lung bypass machine, similar to what cardiac surgeons use in the operating room. Um, and it's, a comp it's made up of a series of tubes, a pump, and an oxygenator. Um, it requires a surgery to get um, implanted into a patient by our cardiac surgeons. And it requires a very specialized team in the CVICU to manage these patients who are this critically ill once they get placed on it. We use it in patients who are so sick, um, despite whatever conventional medical treatments that we have, um, that are just, they're just not enough and they're just not working. So it's usually a matter of life and death choice, quite frankly, to put someone on ECMO. And so um, we decided to put him on ECMO a day after he got to us. Um, since then, he has had the breathing tube removed from his mouth, but it is in his tracheostomy. He still requires the ventilator and ECMO support. Um, he's very critical, he's stable, uh, but he's very sick and he's still sitting there fighting for his life. Um, so his wife and his parents are really besides themselves right now. They're feeling helpless. They have so many questions. Is he gonna live? If he's gonna live, what is life gonna be like for this guy that just was out hiking the Red Rock in 115 degree heat um, four weeks ago? Uh, will he be able to support his family? Will he be able to grow his family? Is he gonna need a lung transplant? Um, a lot of questions that we don't really know answers to yet. Um, and these are not unusual questions for any family to ask in an ICU about their loved ones. I think what makes this so heartbreaking for the family and for all the caregivers that care for him every day is um, his vaccination status and the fact that this could have been prevented. Um, the data suggests that the likelihood of a healthy vaccinated 28-year-old getting this sick is very, very low. Um, even if he got a breakthrough infection as a vaccinated uh, person, he probably would not have been hospitalized or needed the ICU or a ventilator or ECMO. And we wouldn't be here today having this conversation about him. Um, so even as his wife and his family are struggling with the fact that this nightmare um, is, was preventable, potentially preventable, they are really determined to use this experience that they're having to encourage the community to go out and get vaccinated today, right now. Um, they understandably are under a lot of duress and they were not able to be here themselves. Uh, but they did ask that I share a statement um, from them to the community. And this is from his wife with the help of his parents. Um, three weeks ago, we were happy, healthy, and had the usual everyday questions of what's for dinner or when we'll get home, when will we get home from work to see each other. Since then, since then, our lives have been turned upside down and very uncertain with questions of will he make it through the night and how did he even get this sick? We made a choice just like a lot of people did. Both of us are young and considered not to be at risk, so we didn't see the urgency in getting vaccinated. Today I think about that choice and I think of what my husband has gone through as well as our family. Getting vaccinated is a serious decision, but there are consequences for both choices. Not getting vaccinated could mean you and your family have to deal with the brutal side of COVID. 
your family may have to experience the helplessness of helpless feeling of waiting outside for news every few hours because they can't get to go in to see you that sinking feeling when the phone rings because it could be a nurse or a doctor telling them that your lungs aren't responding enough to the oxygen machine or the fear of being one hour away from the hospital because they might not get there in time to see you through the window these are all very real situations that have made the last three weeks feel like a terrible dream we weren't prepared we weren't prepared for how sick he would be so fast and want to share his experiences to inform others of how devastating this virus can be, particularly if you do not get vaccinated. Um, so we, we wanted to share their struggle, the family's struggles, and I do thank them for being so open and honest um, with all of us and communicating all this to the public. Um, but hopefully this is a message to the community to go out and get vaccinated right now um, even those of you who may not consider yourselves high risk, um, it's not really a gamble that's worth taking right now. Um, and that's all I have. So thank you. That's Dr. Vina Satapria from the OSU Wexner Medical Center speaking at a news conference in Columbus on Thursday. We'll wrap up this segment with Columbus Health Commissioner Dr. Mashika Roberts. This runs about two minutes. And just to summarize what you heard is the pandemic is not over. We have several tools that we can all use, and it's everyone's responsibility to use them. That's to get yourself vaccinated, and if you have been vaccinated, encourage someone who is not vaccinated to get vaccinated, and to mask up, especially when you're indoors. So I know you're all wondering, well, why did we bring you here to tell you the situation? And so here it goes. Um, Starting immediately, Columbus Public Health and Franklin County Public Health are issuing an indoor mask advisory. This is an advisory, it's not an order, and it's not a mandate. And the reason why it's not an order or a mandate is because of State Senate Bill 22, which prohibits us from doing any order that would be a blanket Um, order to the whole population. But we are encouraging all of you and all of the residents of Franklin County Public Health, when they are indoors, whether they're vaccinated or not, to put a mask on. That includes businesses, that includes um, any healthcare facility, which they should already be masking up, and that includes going into restaurants. When you're not eating and drinking, we want you to have a mask on. That will help us spread, sorry, slow the spread of this virus in our community. We don't know how long this pandemic is going to last, and we don't know what the next variant will be and how serious it will be. But we do know what we can do to slow the spread of this virus, and that's to get vaccinated and to put a mask on. Columbus Health Commissioner Dr. Mashika Roberts. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. How do you know if you or a loved one is at risk of problem gambling? 
by knowing the signs such as borrowing money, hiding unpaid debts, bragging about wins, or just plain irritability. Sound familiar? Get Set Before You Bet is Ohio's initiative to help keep gambling safe and responsible for everyone. How does it work? Just visit BeforeYouBet.org to learn more and take the responsible gambling quiz. Together, we can keep gambling safe and responsible in Ohio. This message brought to you by Ohio for Responsible Gambling. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. Here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. over face coverings has reignited on Capitol Hill. Mask mandates are now in effect in the U.S. House and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, a Republican, has been criticizing them. Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan of Ohio fired back at McCarthy's remarks. You're denigrating the attending physician? Has it gotten that this bad here? We'll be the first one to go down there when we're sick, need an antibiotic. Get your, get your checkup. I mean, come on. Stop. Just stop. Republicans have argued the decision is not based on science. COVID-19 cases are back up to levels we haven't seen since spring. And as kids get ready for school, local health departments are recommending masks. But that guidance is only a recommendation, not a mandate. And here's why. The Ohio legislature passed Senate Bill 22. The law restricts the governor's authority and ability to issue health orders at the time of a health crisis. Local health departments called out the law this past week, saying due to limitations Senate Bill 22 has placed on local public health, these are not orders, but are data-driven and science-based recommendations, and they follow CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations. The final decision is made by the governing body of each district. Governor DeWine spoke about the difficulty of mandating masks. I don't think leaders in Ohio, uh, whether health leaders or the governor, have the ability today uh, to, to mandate 
masked in schools. And it's not a question of what the law is. It's a question of uh, the political will uh, of, of people in this state. Mask orders are now left up to each school district and parent. 10TV's Kevin Landers spoke with families about their thoughts. Emily Campbell of Hilliard is a mother of four children. When it comes to having them wear masks in school, she's on the fence. My one son has a lung disease, so on one hand I'm for the mask, but on the other I'm not. Um, I honestly feel like it should be up to the parents and the families, though. It shouldn't be regulated for them. It should be up to us. New mask guidelines announced by Columbus Public Health and Franklin County Health recommend universal mask wearing in schools, even for the fully vaccinated. Matt Cook of Hilliard says he wants kids in his son's school to be masked. In schools, definitely. Got to protect everybody. During an event at Ohio State, Governor Mike DeWine threw his support behind the universal mask idea. This now comes back to the schools and it now comes back to the parents. And, you know, I think it makes eminent sense for a school to make a decision that we're going to have everyone, everyone masked. Um, if they don't do that, then it's, it's going to be almost an experiment because last year everyone was masked in virtually every school in the state of Ohio and we did not have much spread. DeWine says it's not the unmasked that has him most concerned, it's communities that are unvaccinated. The biggest fear uh, I, I think we should have is communities that are predominantly unvaccinated. Meanwhile, parents like Emily Campbell and Matt Cook prepare to send their kids to school where children under 12 still can't get the vaccine with the hope that the classroom will be safe for all. I'm not concerned about it. Everybody should be wearing masks indoors. And again, that was Kevin Landers reporting. Governor DeWine is defending his decision to hire a man who is now the subject of an FBI investigation. DeWine appointed Sam Randazzo to be the head of the state's Public Utilities Commission with known ties to First Energy. First Energy admits to paying Randazzo more than $4 million in payments to order, in order to pass House Bill 6, which was a taxpayer bailout of two nuclear power plants. Randazzo has not been charged with any crime. It turns out DeWine's then chief of staff knew of the payment to Randazzo in October, but apparently didn't tell DeWine until November. My chief of staff, Laurel, uh, was told by Randazzo um, about a large payment October 2020, October 30th, 2020. So that's when that information flowed to her. Uh, I did not know about it until I think November 17th, which was the day of the raid. DeWine said Randazzo worked for both consumers and businesses, and because he was a subject expert on energy, he was the most qualified. Randazzo resigned from the Public Utilities Commission in November. DeWine's donated more than $130,000 in campaign donations from First Energy to the Ohio Alliance of Boys and Girls Clubs after learning of the payment. Republicans and Democrats agree a more than half-trillion-dollar investment in America's roads and bridges will grow the economy. A bipartisan infrastructure bill it invest $110 billion on America's roads and bridges. Almost the same amount would be spent on rail and public transit projects. And billions more would upgrade the country's broadband, Internet, airports, drinking water, and electrical grid. At a time when Washington seems broken... This group of members behind me came together, along with others, and decided we were going to do something great for our country. 
But some moderate Democrats say they are uncomfortable with that price tag. And from the roads you drive to the water you drink. On out, we have water from the Red Cross. You might recall back in 2014, half a million people were unable to drink their water, cook with it, or even brush their teeth. This happened in the Toledo area, and 10TV covered this closely. Stores ran out of bottled water, and there was price gouging reported. I talked one-on-one -on -one with the director of the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. She wants to reassure central Ohioans that your water is safe, but there's an initiative called H2 Ohio to make sure it stays that way. I remember 2014, we're talking about the algae blooms and all everybody buying cases of water. Practically, you know, what do we need to know about the safety of the water that we're drinking? Well, I don't think... Um... Here in Central Ohio, you don't need to be concerned about it. I'm, I want to congratulate the local municipalities, and they have great, um, they, they, they clean the water well for Central Ohioans. So I don't want anyone to be concerned, you know, what they're drinking on a daily basis. But we have to look to the future. I mean, what happened in Toledo was they had a good drinking water. Um, they had the infrastructure in place and got clogged because of the algae blooms. We need to prevent that from happening here in the Ohio River Basin. Um, in anywhere that uh, that municipalities draw on reservoirs, as they do here in Central Ohio, local governments and nonprofits can apply for the funding, and it's to um, do natural infrastructure or wetlands-based projects. I mean, we we look at wetlands as a way to 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 filter, slow down, draw out all of the pollutants and polluting nutrients that would be in the water flowing into various reservoirs, tributaries, that kind of thing. So all of the projects are going to be wetland-based. I think what the science has shown us is the most significant cause is, is runoff, mostly from farm fields. Now, Farmers are our friends, right? We want them yeah. to produce the food we eat. So I, I'm not, that's not a criticism at all. Just recognition that that farm runoff and some of the storm runoff from urban areas as well. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're dealing with. How do we, how do we catch that runoff and treat it and do something about it before it gets to our water sources? So people can continue to go up to Alum Creek Beach and have a great time, right? Mm -hmm. They don't want to come up there and see algae blooms and scum on the water. Right. So it does get back to the partnerships, which is really what you just, we talked about at the beginning of our interview, right? Right. So the Department of Agriculture is doing a great job working with farmers in Northwest Ohio. And ultimately, I think they will, you know, work with farmers across the state, but mm -hmm. um, they're just, you know, it's kind of good. They're testing things out up there. They're seeing how it goes. And, and so by the time, you know, they're working across the rest of the state, they'll have um, even more information and do even better. And we will share information about how to apply for those grants at 10tv.com slash featured links. Ohioans in need of financial help will not be getting those extra $300 checks. Coming up, meet the man who says that cash was the only reason they weren't without a home. Stopping hazing at the State House. The new effort is aimed at more than just Greek life. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. What is dedication? The thing that drives me every day as a dad is Dariana. We call him Day-Day uh, for short. Every day he's hungry for something, whether it's attention, affection, knowledge. 
And there's this huge responsibility in making sure that when he's no longer under my wing, that he's a good person. I think the advice I would give is you don't need to know all the answers. The craziest thing was believing that your dad knew everything. So as a dad, you felt like you had to know everything. You had to get everything right. It's okay to make mistakes. As long as it's coming from love, then, you know, it kind of starts to work itself out. I want him to be able to sit back one day and go, we worked together, we did a good job. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. The strength of our country hasn't just been won on the battlefield. It's won every day in our communities when we come together in our toughest times. For over 100 years, the American Legion has been strengthening communities across our nation by providing life-saving help and support to our veterans and neighbors during times like we're facing today. We are the American Legion, veterans strengthening America. To learn how you can help, visit legion.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. The presidents of Ohio's major universities joined the governor to announce a commitment to zero tolerance for hazing. Something to keep in mind, this isn't just about fraternities and sororities at public universities. 10TV's Clay Gordon reports it also affects all athletics and organizations. The first time we talked to the Fultz family shortly after losing their son Stone to a hazing incident involving an off-campus fraternity at Bowling Green State University, they've been longing for one change. We need a zero tolerance on hazing. Zero tolerance? We need the universities to help us help keep their students safe. And at the State House, we are focusing on a zero tolerance approach. Zero tolerance approach. A zero tolerance approach. Their commitment to their son. Thank you for helping us make this promise to our son, Stone. Was kept. When the president of the university says this will not be tolerated anymore, it means means a great deal. 14 university presidents coming together to create new anti-hazing principles. Students will be automatically expelled and not allowed from attending any other Ohio public university if convicted of criminal hazing. Educating families and alumni on hazing and how to report it and providing information on previous violations so students know before joining organizations. A pledge to the community by the presidents of these universities. It is an absolute win for us. Um, It's a step in the right direction. An effort Sherry and Corey Foltz have been fighting hard for since March. This is something that we've been working from day one. When uh, Stone was in his hospital bed, we made that promise to him that we would do everything that we possibly could to prevent this from happening to another family. And if it does. So you will be holding these universities responsible if an incident does occur. Absolutely. In Columbus, Clay Gordon, 10TV News. These anti-hazing principles will only impact public universities at this time. Governor DeWine did say private schools and colleges are close to coming up with similar initiatives. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine stopped the $300 unemployment payments in June, even though the federal government's program doesn't expire until September. This week, a judge had the option to expand that extra $300 support, but he decided not to. One family says that decision could leave them homeless. Once again, here's Kevin Landers. My family's in a dilemma right now, and I don't know what to do. Matthew Thompson is an unemployed married father of seven children, ages 13 years old to 14 months. My rent's starting to get behind, 
and there's absolutely nothing I can do. Thompson, who is a diesel mechanic from Delphus, is like so many other Ohioans who filed for unemployment but hasn't been paid because of delays in the system. The bills just keep stacking up, and eventually it's going to get to the point where we're going to start facing eviction because we have no income. I can't get the state benefits, so the extension on top of that from the federal government is actually going to be a blessing for us. But there's another side to this story. Businesses say they can't find enough people to work. And organizations like the Ohio Chamber of Commerce say by ending the $300 unemployment extension, it will incentivize people to get back to work. One of the reasons we think that, that, that um, the workforce shortage still exists is because of this $300 benefit. In fact, um, if you make less than $41,000 a year, you'll earn more in one week collecting unemployment than you would in a paycheck. But Ohio's unemployment numbers aren't going down. The number of workers unemployed in Ohio in June was 291,000, up from 278,000 in May. Thompson says the incentive isn't working. Unemployment has actually gone up instead of declined. That makes no sense to me. So you take something away that's actually benefiting people, and in turn, it's actually hurting the people instead. Kevin Landers, 10TV News. Critical race theory is a term we're hearing from politicians to everyday people. But is it even taught in your child's school? We verify next. Distracted driving in Ohio, why researchers say our state could be doing more to protect lives. We are advocates. We are defenders. We are champions. And friends. We are the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. 230 accredited members employing thousands. All dedicated to the care and conservation of Earth's precious wildlife. Sea turtles. African penguins. California condors. Cheetahs. And countless endangered species that are close to extinction. See for yourself at aza.org slash join us. Or at an AZA accredited zoo and aquarium today. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. A new study is highlighting how hands-free cell phone laws can save lives. The study was just released this past week, and it comes from Nationwide Children's Hospital. The research shows hands-free laws prevented about 140 driver deaths and nearly 14,000 driver injuries annually in the U.S. Researchers, after crunching the data, recommend states implement hands-free driving laws. Right now, 21 states have those kinds of laws. Ours is not one of them. As kids head back to school, there is perhaps no topic more controversial than critical race theory. But here's the big question. Is it even a part of the state's curriculum? TV's Karina Nova looks at that question. She took it to the experts. Here's what she found out. Our Verify team is here to answer your questions. 10TV viewer Ray Harris asks us to verify, is critical race theory taught in any central Ohio public schools, and is it a part of the state curriculum? To get the answer, we went to the Ohio Department of Education. Their chief communications officer tells us the Ohio Department of Education provides a model curriculum that schools may choose to use or not. The state model curricula are completely optional and, in fact, are intended more as extensions of the standards and not really daily lessons or pacing and sequencing guides. According to this Ohio Revised Code, local schools and districts have the sole authority for adopting curriculum. An ODE spokeswoman also says it explicitly articulates that local boards have complete control over curriculum. Also, according to state law, school districts aren't required to utilize any part of the state's model curriculum. 
Simply put, there are statewide standards which apply to schools. There is no curriculum required and critical race theory is not part of the suggested curriculum. We reached out to some local school districts about teaching critical race theory. Columbus City Schools, Westerville, Gahanna Jefferson, and Hilliard all say they do not teach critical race theory in any grades. But you can check with your local school district to find out. So we can verify, no, critical race theory is not part of the state's model curriculum. Districts can teach it if they want to, but the districts we reached out to say they do not. With this Verify, I'm Karina Nova. A Texas Senate bill is getting national attention after a viral post claims the state will ban teaching about Martin Luther King Jr. speeches or other topics involving race. Brandon Lewis from our National Verify team looks into whether students will have a new curriculum this fall. An Instagram post with more than 180,000 likes claims Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, Native American history, and the nation's history of white supremacy are all topics that could be out of the classroom in Texas. So let's verify. Are Texas schools banned from teaching about the civil rights movement and the history of white supremacy? Our sources are the Texas Legislature, the Texas State Board of Education, and several teachers' unions. This started in May when Texas Republicans proposed a bill to direct teachers on how they can talk with students about racism and current events. Democrats then added a requirement that teachers must also discuss the history of civil rights, Native Americans and white supremacy. Both houses passed the bill and Governor Greg Abbott signed it into law. However, Senate Republicans wanted to go back and undo the history requirements with a new bill. Abbott agreed to call a special session, saying the bills would be a, quote, strong move to abolish critical race theory. But the House hasn't been able to vote on this newer bill because they're unable to reach a quorum yet. The Texas Board of Education wouldn't discuss the two bills, but the state's curriculum has always included these topics in the lesson plan. For example, the ninth grade curriculum already includes lessons about the civil rights movement and Native American history. Their U.S. history class also covers Jim Crow laws and how the KKK worked to suppress minority voting. The first bill simply made teaching this a legal requirement. If the second bill passes, it will no longer be required by law, but the Texas Board of Education can still decide to teach it anyway. So it's false that Texas schools are banned from teaching about the civil rights movement and the history of white supremacy. With your Verify, I'm Brandon Lewis. Remember, if you have a question or a claim you want verified, just reach out to our team on Facebook or send us an email to verify at 10tv.com. Thank you so much for joining us here today. We will see you next Sunday for Face the State. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James. Joining me on the phone is James Sink. He's with FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. He's uh, the Regional Flood Insurance Liaison for the Ohio region. How are you? Very well. How are you today? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, We're going to talk about flood concerns in Ohio and... uh, 
First, tell us uh, how big of an issue flooding has been in Ohio as uh, FEMA relates to it. Uh, yeah, so Ohio has a very long history of flooding, um, both in terms of river flooding, um, especially in the southern Ohio River Valley, uh, but also flash flooding. Um, and then last year in, in Michigan, we saw how uh, even the, the best built flood defenses can sometimes be overwhelmed by Mother Nature uh, with the dam failures in Midland. Um, so in Ohio, we see on average the flood insurance claim is a, a little over $12,000. Um, so there definitely is a history of flooding in Ohio and, and a history of uh, damages to uh, businesses, um, apartment buildings, renters, and, and to um, homes. Is it common knowledge among people that your regular homeowner's insurance doesn't cover a flash flood? Uh, unfortunately, that is something that most people do not know. Uh, most homeowners policies and business policies and renters insurance policies do not cover flooding. So it's really important that people talk to their insurance agent uh, to uh, about flood insurance so they can, that they can uh, protect the lives that they built. Again, most homeowners policies, most renters policies, and most business policies do not cover flooding. So you would need to have a separate flood insurance policy um, so you can talk to your insurance agent or visit floodsmart.gov to learn more about that. But there is a distinction between, say, a flash flood that damages your home compared to, say, if your hot water heater springs a leak and floods your kitchen. That is covered usually, right? Uh, yeah, so those are those are two different types of water damage. So uh, the uh, hot water example um, would probably be covered by your homeowner's policy. Flood insurance covers water that uh, covers damage from water that affects two or more properties and or two or more acres and is flowing over normally dry land. So for flood insurance to offer coverage, there has to be inundation of normally dry land. So in that case, the example you gave, a homeowner's policy would probably cover the, the water heater, um, but if water were to come from outside of that building, uh, flood insurance would probably kick in. And how much does flood insurance cost to add that onto a homeowner's policy? Sure. Um, flood insurance can be purchased for as little as $300 a year. Uh, flood insurance premiums are based on risk. So the higher your risk, the higher the premium would be. So it's really important that people talk to their insurance agent, um, get a quote for their specific property, um, and see how much flood insurance could cost for them. But it does start at as little as $300 a year. Talking with James Sink, he's uh, FEMA's regional flood insurance liaison for the Ohio region. So when there is flooding in a home... Uh, you know, you see all these uh, classic photos all around the country of, you know, maybe water that goes up to knee high inside a house. What kind of damage does that cost and how fixable is that? You know, one inch of water can cost $25,000 of damage. Um, so a little bit of water can cause a lot more damage than most people would expect. And last year's dam failures in Michigan, we saw the average flood insurance claim being $66,000. Um, so a little bit of water can, can really cause a lot of damage. So it's really important that people have those conversations with their insurance agent and uh, protect the life they built by purchasing flood insurance. You know, you mentioned the dam failures. In, in Ohio, we had a real high-profile dam risk with Buckeye Lake east of Columbus back about five years ago when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers deemed it a great risk to about 3,000 people. They lowered the lake spent $100 million uh, rehabbing that dam, and it's uh, good to go now. But I guess there are a lot of old dams in Ohio where someday that may be the problem. So um, our flood control uh, infrastructure is safe, and dams are safe. But last year's um, the Blend experience is a really 
really good example that Mother Nature can sometimes throw us a curveball and overwhelm even the best built flood defenses. Um, 98% of United States counties experience flooding, so it is really important that people um, purchase flood insurance, especially if they're downstream uh, of dams. Um, you never know uh, if Mother Nature can throw us that curveball. Uh, so visit floodsmart.gov slash dams to learn how flood insurance can protect you and the life you've built downstream of dams. What sort of uh, help does FEMA offer when there is, uh, say, a flash flood or some other flooding event that happens in Ohio when you do come into the state to help people? What what sort of procedures are followed? That is a good question. So um, it is possible that flooding could rise to a level that it could receive a major disaster declaration from the president. Uh, in order to do that, um, basically all the state and local resources have to be exhausted. There is a process that the state and local governments go through in order to make that request of the president. Um, those kinds of disaster declarations are incredibly rare. Um, so it is very important that people um, ha- are properly insured, especially from flooding. It is the most common and costly disaster in the United States. Uh, most flood events do not receive a major disaster declaration, so there is limited assistance available from the federal government. However, flood insurance will pay out your flood insurance claims even if there is no federal disaster declaration. So flood insurance is the best way for homeowners, business owners, and renters uh, to protect themselves from uh, flash flooding or any other kind of flood event. And if you see in the forecast, you know, that there's uh, three or four days of very heavy rain coming to Ohio where maybe, you know, four to six inches is coming and you live in a an area that might be affected by that, you can't just buy in, uh, flood insurance, you know, within like a week before that happens and be covered, right? Yeah, that's right, Dave. In most cases, there is a 30-day waiting period for flood insurance. So it is important that you purchase flood insurance early and that you renew that policy every year. That way you're not caught in that 30-day waiting period. If there is a flood event that begins prior to the effective date of that policy, it's probably something we can't cover. So important to remember, there is a 30-day waiting period in most cases. Uh, Buy flood insurance early and make sure you renew your policy every year. Talking with James Sink from FEMA. Anything else you'd like to add? Because flooding is the most common and costly disaster in the United States. Uh, visit floodsmart.gov slash dams to learn more about flood insurance and how it can protect you and your property downstream of dams and in other flood events. Okay, good information. Uh, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. In times of fear, World Vision has been there for the most vulnerable. For the last 70 years, we've stood with kids and families during some of the world's hardest times. Through natural disasters, war, and disease, delivering life-saving aid and support, helping rebuild lives, and empowering entire communities to lift themselves out of poverty. And we're doing the same today. Because rising to these challenges is in our DNA. And with every act of courage, faith, and love, at home and abroad, we do more than just stop the spread of fear. We replace it with hope. Learn more at worldvision.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Dr. Lee Beers. She is the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us uh, briefly what the American Academy of Pediatrics is. So 
the American Academy of Pediatrics is an organization that represents over 67,000 pediatricians across the country. And our mission is, is that we're dedicated to promoting the health and well-being of all children. And you are uh, involved in a campaign, a, a vaccine education campaign related to the coronavirus. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we know that, that the COVID-19 vaccine is safe and effective and, uh, and, and available to teens ages 12 and up. And so, you know, we want to make sure that all of our patients, all of our families have the knowledge and education um, that they need to be able to make, the, make a good decision and, and uh, get vaccinated and protect themselves against COVID. You know, it's interesting. I was looking at some uh, statistics from the Ohio Hospital Association. It says that in the last uh, week, 18 kids uh, age 17 and under were hospitalized with COVID, 62 in the last month. And in December and January, when it was at its peak, 500 kids in Ohio age 17 and under were hospitalized. You know, if there was anything else going on that I guess was more tangible and new, that put 500 kids in Ohio in the hospital in a two-month period, you, nobody would stop talking about it. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's so true, right? And, and I think that you, you point out a, um, an important misconception, actually, that people sometimes have, which is that children are not affected by COVID-19. Um, and, and, you know, the, the numbers you shared with us and, and uh, you know, what we're seeing around the country really tells us that, that kids, in fact, can get quite sick with COVID. We're grateful that they're not as at high risk for, for severe infection as older adults are, but they still can get quite sick. Um, we've, we've seen also a big increase in the number of cases over the, even over the past few weeks. Um, you know, when, when we look at the numbers of, of children infected with COVID, there are over 70,000 children in, in effect, infected with COVID over the past week, which is, a, which is a jump of almost double from the week before. So school is getting ready to start up. Uh, you know, everybody got sick of the masks and the social distancing. And now that we've gotten away from it a bit, it's harder to go back. What, what are you recommending for schools and parents and kids in the fall? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, the American Academy of Pediatrics has recently released uh, some, or recently updated actually, our guidance on on returning to safe in-person school. And I think first and most importantly, you know, we think our, our highest priority needs to be to get kids back to school in person. It's, it's it's really what's best for their, their development, their learning, um, their social-emotional development. And we know from over the past year that there are ways that we can do that safely. Um, you know, and that includes uh, layering a number of precautions, layering a number of things to, to help keep kids safe uh, when they're, they're in the school building and help keep teachers and staff safe as well. Um, and those things include, um, you know, good hand washing, uh, access to regular testing, universal masking for, for children and adults over the age of two, and all of those things together will really help decrease um, uh, the risk for spread of COVID within schools so that our kids can get back safely to in-person learning. Talking with Dr. Lee Beers, president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, are you expecting vaccines to eventually be eligible for just about anybody at any age under age 12? Yeah, I think, I think we do expect that. We don't know exactly when it will happen. That is, of course, 
you know, dependent on on uh, the results of the trials and 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 the FDA review. But we do we do absolutely expect that. And and I would say that pediatricians and fans across the country are really eagerly awaiting that um, because we know we want to we want to make sure that we're protecting um, all of us and all all of us, um, including our youngest. What about parents who just uh, say they have a concern about? a vaccine that is not fully approved yet, or even if it is, may be concerned about what kind of future impact it could have on their children's health. Well, you know, the, the first and most important thing I would say is if you have questions or concerns, please reach out to your pediatrician and talk with them about it because we're, we're here and we're ready and, and we, want, we want to be able to answer your questions. We want to be able to, um, you know, hear, hear what you're thinking and hear what your concerns are. You know, I think another few things that I would point out is, is that, you know, first of all, we, we actually over, you know, 9 million teens have actually gotten at least one dose of, of COVID-19 vaccine. Um, and so, you know, I think that, 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 you know, I think, you know, we actually have quite a bit of experience with this. I would also say that, um, you know, the, the, the processes that our FDA goes through before they authorize a vaccine are very careful. They're very detailed. Um, and I feel incredibly confident in them. Uh, I feel confident enough in them that, that I, I have two teenagers and they both received the vaccine as soon as they were eligible to and it was available to them. And so, so I, I feel really, really confident in that. I think a final thing to point out um, in terms of parents who are wondering, you know, are there, you know, what, 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 what about the long term? Um, you know, a couple things. We know from from what we what we know about vaccines across from previous, you know, all of our other vaccines that we give is, is that there was going to be a significant side effect. Um, you know, we pretty much always saw that uh, within the first six to eight weeks, and and I know we're well past that with experience uh, with the COVID nineteen vaccine. I think the second thing that's really important to point out is that we we are seeing long term impacts of COVID nineteen infection. Um, and in some kids, we're seeing that they're ill and have symptoms of what people sometimes call long COVID um, for many, many, many months. And, and in fact, what I worry most about is the long-term effects of COVID infection. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Is there a possibility 20, 30 years down the road that, you know, we look back and, and we find that kids who got coronavirus 30 years ago, something is happening to them medically later? I mean, I think we don't know, right? Time will tell, um, but that, that is something I worry about. And I think that if we have a safe and effective way to prevent infection from a virus that, that we're seeing in some children and adults um, can have, you know, at least long-term impacts as far as we know and um, may have even longer-term impacts, that we should absolutely take advantage of, of um, that safe and effective intervention of the vaccine. You know, less than half of all adults in America get a flu vaccine every year. Do you think maybe that will ramp up uh, in the coming years as people perhaps become more familiar again with yearly vaccines? Well, I hope so. Um, I absolutely hope so, because the flu vaccine is also safe and effective and helps prevent serious illness. And so I do uh, hope that it does. It's, it's certainly something that, um, you know, we recommend and I recommend to all my patients and the families of all my patients. Dr. Lee Beers, president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Do you have a website you're recommending to folks? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's actually two. Uh, uh, you can go to the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics um, uh, website for families called HealthyChildren.org. Um, you also can go to a, a website called GetVaccineAnswers.org, and that both of those have lots of information about uh, the COVID-19 vaccine and any questions you may have, but also uh, lots of other topics related to child health. Dr. Beers, uh, thanks so much for the information and your time. Great. Thank you so much for having me here today. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.